Hey, hello, my name's Dan Rebellato, and you're listening to Stage Directions. Stage Directions is a podcast about theatre and criticism, performance and research, and we're back from our not entirely deliberate summer break. In this episode, I discuss the past and future of theatre criticism with Catherine Love and Megan Vaughan. There's a conversation about me and Robin Hood between me and Sean Dale Jones, and I set sail for heterotopias and unknown islands in the company of Kim Solga. Well, we just received clearance for takeoff, so please keep your seat in an upright position with your tray folded, and do not unfasten your seatbelt until instructed to by a member of the crew. I'm your captain, and I wish you a relaxing flight. I want to talk about the state of theatre criticism. No, wait, come back. I know what you're thinking, this again? The word critic and the word crisis share an etymological root in the Greek word krisis, meaning decision or discrimination, and criticism seems to have been in a state of crisis ever since. Barely a year goes by without some flare-up of the wither criticism debate. But something a bit more fundamental does seem to be afoot right now. The roots of this lie in the emergence of the internet, which had two very significant effects. The first was that in the early 2000s, most of the national newspapers placed all of their content online for free. Perhaps they thought it would drive people to the print version, uh, perhaps they would build their brand, perhaps they thought they would make up in advertising what they lost in over-the-counter sales, maybe they just didn't want to get left behind by the new media, and perhaps it was a mixture of all of these. The result, however, has been a vertiginous collapse in newsprint sales. According to a report by Communications Management, in 1950 there were on average 21 million newspapers sold every day and 31 million on Sundays. By the beginning of this decade, the daily figure had more than halved and the Sunday figure was less than a third what it was, despite a population increase of almost a third since the 1950s. And things have accelerated considerably this decade. The circulation of the Sun, the Daily Mirror, the Daily Star, Daily Express are less than two-thirds what they were in 2010. The circulation of the Guardian, the Financial Times and the Scottish Daily Record are around half the figure at the beginning of the decade. Even the redoubtably appalling Daily Mail has lost around 30% of its sales in just seven years. For this reason, budgets are squeezed, and among the many areas cut back is arts coverage. One of the independent on Sunday's Canute-like attempts to resist the tide was to make its arts critics redundant in summer 2013. A month later, without explanation, the Times dropped its assiduous and sensitive critic Libby Purvis. On a flimsily moralising pretext, the Sunday Express fired its critic Mark Shenton later that year, and 12 months later Tim Walker was fired from the Sunday Telegraph. He was not exactly mourned, but the bigger picture was clear. The newspapers were decluttering, and the theatre critics were the first in the skip. At the same time, the advertising revenue that some hoped would ride to the newspaper's aid has not come, because everyone else wants it too. The statistics available to newspaper owners may show that reviews are not the areas of the paper with the greatest readership, making their economic case harder to justify. 
compete, critics are increasingly having to produce clickbait, luridly outrageous reviews that drive traffic to the site, whether in the spirit of approval or outrage. This explains the career of Quentin Letts. And mentioning no other names, one sees an increasingly strident tone to the notices of even our more reflective reviewers. The nature of traditional criticism is changing as part of the general Katie Hopkinsization of the commercial media. On the other hand, the internet has provided a clear rival to that traditional criticism. In May 2007, Nick Heitner stirred up a bit of controversy with his contention that criticism was dominated by a lot of dead white males, suggesting in particular that these aged, complacent, somewhat privileged men had a notable lack of sympathy for the work of younger women directors. Emma Rice's production of A Matter of Life and Death had just opened at the National. A lot of these dead white males rose from their graves in umbrage, protesting their feminist sympathies in more or less patrician tones. But perhaps Heitner had also seen that the wind had changed direction. In the early 2000s, there were a few theatre websites. What's on stage was already in existence. I used to enjoy reading the personal blogs by David Eldritch and friend of the pod Paul Miller. Don't look for it, it's not there anymore. With a dozen friends in and around the theatre, I started Encore Theatre magazine in 2003, everyone writing pugnaciously under the anonymously collective pseudonym Theatre Worker, trying to create a punkish intervention in the overly respectful and conventional priorities of the critics. But things really got going a couple of years later when blogging took off, from the waspishly witty experiments in critical style of the West End Wingers the abundant brilliance of Chris Good's blog, for whom it was worth taking a day off work to read, and Andy Field's interweaving of the personal and the critical in his Arcades project. By the beginning of this decade, the theatrical web had the experimental-feeling but professional-looking website Exeunt, and dedicated theatre-critical blogs by the likes of Andrew Hayden, Dan Bai, Stuart Pringle, Matt Truman, Tim Barno, Maddie Costa, Megan Vaughan, Catherine Love, and others with conversations turning global with important figures like Alison Crogan in Australia and George Hunker in the US. What these and other critics were able to do was to question what writing about the theatre could be. Some simply refreshed the traditional form of the short evaluative review. Others offered impassioned emotional intensities, long-form intellectual content, reviews of reviews, in-depth accounts of rehearsals, and some explored the visual, graphical, hypertextual possibilities offered by the digital medium to find new forms better suited to the changing nature of British theatre and performance. The sense of a movement was reinforced by a couple of now well-documented flashpoints where the new critical voices engaged in verbal battle with the dead white males over controversial productions like Three Kingdoms or Mr Burns. This year, in Edinburgh, Zoe Coombs-Marr, Ursula Martinez and Adrian Truscott created the show Wild Boar, in which they read out reviews and critiqued the critics for their patriarchal assumptions and aesthetic laziness. It's hard to imagine such a show 20 years ago, but it does feel as if the monopoly of the dead white males has been broken. Now, I'm a bit of a dilettante theatre blogger, but even so it felt exciting to be involved in those debates. Though on the other hand, do we overstate the importance of this? Online criticism is so far still a hobby for most. There's not yet an economic model that would make it work long term. The future of the newspapers is not at all clear. 
So it seems worth asking that old question for new reasons. What is the future of criticism? So today I want to talk about the future of theatre criticism and I'm very honoured to have two of the most important and interesting theatre critics to emerge this century. Why don't you stop laughing and introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Megan Vaughan and I am, well, I was, I guess, a theatre blogger and now I'm more kind of interested in researching theatre bloggers and the offer that they're making to the industry. Hi, I'm Catherine Love uh, and I also am a former blogger, I suppose. I now write for a range of publications like The Guardian and Exeunt uh, and I'm also uh, a researcher and elements of my research engage with theatre criticism. So look, I want to ask about the, the future of theatre criticism, but also the present, and I'll ask a little bit about the past as well. Um, but can we start just by taking a kind of a snapshot? I was thinking about this earlier and actually thinking that in some respects it feels as though we've been stuck with some of the same debates for quite a while now. I first started a theatre blog, I think, think it must be seven years ago now and it feels as though though a lot of the same discussions about certainly about the economics of it and this idea that theatre criticism is somehow in crisis that feels as though it just kind of rolls back around every so often so in that respect doesn't feel like that much has has changed over those seven years but actually technologically there is uh, a lot there a lot available to us but perhaps that's not being fully engaged with at the moment and a lot of the the kind of models uh, that we've inherited from print criticism have been quite kind of robust and, and persistent right. online um, so it's this this, this sort of odd um, position of both on the one hand lots of possibility on the other hand being kind of mired in some of the the same debates and the same models and patterns I think that's kind of interesting in a way what you say about kind of online potentially giving us opportunity to develop maybe a different kind of criticism or to kind of fine-tune or you know develop individual voices Mm. in criticism I kind of feel like in terms of what the possibilities of of online are we shouldn't necessarily push it for everything that it has to offer if that's not necessarily the right thing Mm -hmm. for criticism it's like the question are we going to to do what the internet can do or are we going to do what theatre and theatre criticism wants and needs and deserves and all of those questions I guess in terms of a snapshot of where we are I feel like if the online space can fill in a hole that has been left by some of the kind of the reduction in kind of space and word count and opportunity in in the print world or even like the mainstream world because so many newspapers are online now then that's fantastic but it shouldn't necessarily feel a responsibility to do that Mm. I'm also quite interested in who is making criticism who is who are the critics and what kind of disappoints me sometimes is that for all the opportunity of online space and the fact that you know, anybody with access to the internet and a device, or, you know, can can make a space for themselves doing that. There are still the same kind of voices out there. There's still very few critics of colour. There are still very few critics who are differently abled or who come from a working class background. And that 
for me, feels like it's a much more urgent question than what kind of criticism are we making and whether it's print, whether it's online, whether it's paid or not. This is about economics, isn't it? The reason why we're talking about there being a, a particular crisis in, in criticism, we're talking about the economics of the print media, which, which obviously have undergone a big change, but also perhaps when, we're, when you're lamenting the fact that certain groups of people are not being able to comment or not contributing to online criticism, it's because basically there is not yet a economic model whereby online criticism can support itself. So somebody from a working class background who doesn't have any kind of independent income, perhaps that's that's a barrier. Would you would you say that's true? There is also a big question about role models. Like it's really important that people see that there are others like themselves who inhabit the same kind of, who come from the same kind of background, it's the same kind of world as them, feel that criticism is something that is a worthwhile pastime, even if it's just an unpaid thing. And I think that where we are now is that when you say theatre criticism to people, they still envisage that kind of what Nicholas Heitner called the dead white male, the person who is paid a, what seems to me to be an absolutely ridiculous salary to go to, the sh- go to a show every night and write, what, 400 words about it? Tops? And I think until we break that down and we have some high-profile figures who are either doing it differently or making a success of what opportunities there are out there, then it's not just about economics. It's not just about the fact that there isn't a salary at the end of it. It's about the fact that there's nobody showing people what is possible so when we're talking about the present state of criticism i suppose i'm trying to think how we might historicize that i mean could you both sketch out perhaps in this century what you think the kind of major changes and events have been that have got us to where we are now um thinking about the history of online criticism one thing that uh, i sort of found interesting to reflect on recently was that two of the earliest uh, websites reviewing theatre which are both still going were What's On Stage and British Theatre Guide that both started in like the late 90s Mm. and that that feels like quite a key moment but it seems kind of significant to me that those those two very early um, theatre reviewing websites were largely replicating the print media and weren't trying to carve out an alternative space for responding to theatre online or particularly you know offering alternative voices writing about theatre and then I found it also interesting to reflect on the fact that the kind of the next the first wave of of blogs individual blogs as opposed to those kind of curated websites were largely written by theatre makers thinking about uh, like a Chris Goods blog um, Thompson's Bank of Communicable Desire and uh, Andy Field had a series of of blogs in the sort of the mid noughties I suppose because mm. uh, re- and recently ha- having recently surveyed a number of the blogs from sort of 2007 which which is quite quite often named as a key year in the development of the blogosphere yuck horrible word I was really I was really struck looking back at that material by how many of the people writing online at that point and participating in in discussions via kind of long comments threads a large number of them were theatre makers and it feels as though that discussion of theatre online in a kind of um, blog model as opposed to the sorts of um, theatre viewing websites um, represented by the likes of Watson Stage 
yeah, they were all being written by makers rather than uh, people setting themselves up as critics, as commentators. Isn't one of the contexts for the emergence of online criticism, to some extent, that strange moment when the newspapers saw the internet as this great opportunity at the very beginning of the 2000s, and they put all of their content online, assuming that advertising was going to kind of replace their income. But because everything else is now competing with that, they've kind of got themselves into trouble. Well, it's interesting about what you say people get, you know, the, the print uh, the print media getting themselves into trouble with the internet. When I think when I think back about some of the research I've done this year into the very first theatre reviews, kind of 18th century people writing about the shows that they were seeing and publishing those in kind of periodicals, I started to think about the period of relative stability that, that then followed in like the 20th century when you get a sense of critics making a good living from going out and watching shows and explaining what they thought about them to people. That didn't necessarily mean that those people were being read. Like There is a, a sense of a historical document being created by these newspapers, by theatre reviews featuring in print newspapers. But actually I have a theory that's completely untested and might not be true at all, that the way that the way that newspapers moved online meant that they could track who was reading what for the first time. Like, we, t- I mean, in the theatre community, we, we talk about, about Tynan as if he was, like, this great, important figure because he was for the theatre industry. But how do we know that people who bought The Observer on a Sunday ever read mm. those pages? Mm. We have absolutely no way of knowing that. It was a, a, a sense of a particular bubble. The real problem that newspapers, I think, encountered when they moved online is that they were suddenly able to track what was popular mm. in their pages, which, which sections were being read, what, what was getting people's interest. And that is where we have this situation that arts criticism has been kind of, you know, it's, it's lesser and lesser and lesser now in mainstream publications because they can't necessarily justify it to advertisers because maybe nobody really clicks on those pages. And we never knew that before. Mm-hmm. But maybe still, like, theatre criticism's always been this minority thing that only interests people, you know, in London or in the theatre industry or who mm-hmm. want to be an actor or whatever. Actually, I want to pick up something that, Megan, you said earlier, which is uh, actually about this thought that the, the, the opportunity of online criticism is not to replicate what's already happening, but actually do something distinct and different. I suppose my question is, how far has that already been achieved to some extent? Do you think online criticism is doing something distinct and different? I think that sometimes, rarely it is. I think that we still find, or in my experience, the real, the writing that I love to read about theatre is generally online because I like, my personal preference is to read people who are connecting themselves and their own lives with the work. And I don't feel that the conventions of newspaper criticism allow that from the critics that write on those platforms. But I do also want to just kind of push back against the sense that the internet has a responsibility to anybody or that anybody who's choosing to blog has a responsibility. I've previously said when I've talked about this with other people that I feel that when I was blogging a lot, I felt a responsibility to do something different because I could, because I wanted to show it was possible. Mm -hmm. But I also think that if there are writers out there who want to document their experience of theatre going in 
300 words at a time and finish those 300 words with an evaluative judgment about whether they thought it was any good or not, I think that they should be allowed and supported to do that. Now, I agree that, that the sense of some kind of responsibility um, to, to respond innovatively or to use the... Um, the possibilities available online can come way quite heavy and I've definitely felt that in the past. I remember going back quite a few years now but at one point I decided uh, I was going to try using Pinterest and you know Pinterest boards as a way of responding you know in a visual way to things I was seeing um, and and just discovering actually that it's not really a it's not a very productive form for for theatre criticism or at least it wasn't for me. I think we have to think about who theatre criticism is for as well. The readership is quite important, and I think that all the arguments for criticism that are coming out of the arts community at the moment there are lots of, you know. Uh, artists and makers and organizations going you know we've lost a valuable resource here mm. we used to get this much coverage now we're getting you know a tenth of that what can we do about it and actually the thing that those people have really lost is the short form pithy evaluative review that reaches a wide number of potential audience members and perhaps what what that shift online has revealed is that theatre criticism was always most important for the industry and perhaps didn't serve a huge general readership but that what's been made what's been made increasingly evident as that mainstream coverage has shrunk is that it did have an incredibly important like economic role within the the mm -hmm. sector um and also not just economic i think you know i would like or maybe this is just me being sort of idealistic but i would like to think that there's a kind of artistic role that it plays and also i suppose a, a kind of um historical archival role like you were talking earlier about criticism as a record certainly historically it feels as though the import the the real importance uh, or the where it's where it's had the biggest impact has been within within this niche of, of the theatre sector and mm. a kind of academic maybe more academic community and that of course will be massively lost if we mm. don't all think about digital legacy and what's going to happen to this stuff that's hosted on, you know, WordPress or Tumblr yeah. or whatever. Mm. Like, an archive isn't an archive if mm. it can just be deleted. And so much has already been lost, because when I was trying to... So I was try trying to do this survey of criticism um, from 2007, and just so many of the blogs have oh, just been yeah. shut down, disappeared, and so, yeah. and you know, you're trying to follow up these online conversations and, and clicking through to links that now don't work and it's a huge uh, how we're going to archive that online content is a huge question I think for scholars particularly but also yeah. also for the industry because it's uh, for theatre makers um, it's so helpful to have that sense of their history and I mean it's a it's been a huge issue um, with the kind of alternative theatre movement and lack of documentation around much of that work and that will only continue to be a problem if if this online writing doesn't isn't preserved in some way, which restates in a in a rather stark form the economic problem. Because if we're if we're agreeing that the the value of criticism is first to theatre makers themselves um, as a way of getting kind of feedback response, a conversation going about their work, and then to to, to the future generations of scholars, neither of those are particularly attractive to advertisers. Mm. And if advertisers are going to be the only real source of 
of how the, the, the media are going to be funded, why are they going to, you know, you don't want to put an advert for a product you've got out now that people in 60 years are going to be reading in a library. Um, and similarly, I imagine, you know, you put on a show, even in a big theatre, there's, you know, 50 people really involved in that. That's not a very exciting demographic for for the advertiser. So, well, there are two questions. The first one, I suppose, is, are there, are there any other ways of thinking about what the value of, of theatre criticism might be, or even arts criticism more, more generally? And then secondly, I suppose, we need to think about, well, how are we going to save this? Because it seems like, as you were saying earlier, Megan, at some point, the newspapers are going to go, you know what, we're not going to lose any advertising at all if we simply cut all of our arts coverage. I mean, I'm a massive accelerationist about this. I won't shed a tear when the mainstream newspapers don't have any theatre reviews in them anymore. Like, so what? There are theatre reviews everywhere, all the time. There are theatre reviews in less than 140 characters on Twitter. There are theatre reviews in people's diaries. There are theatre reviews on blogs and on YouTube channels. And it's everywhere. And it's permeating conversations. And so what if it's not going to be in the mainstream press? Like, what we have to think about is how are we preserving the reviews and the critical conversations that are happening online. Like, it feels to me like that question of digital legacy is far more urgent than worrying about what The Guardian does. Hmm. Far more. Okay, I kind of want to respond to that, because is there not something about the kind of care we might have for a... I'm going to use very old-fashioned language here, but a kind of shared common life that means there is something well, healthy about a culture that we have where pretty much all of our national newspapers have some kind of theatre and arts coverage, which means that theatre is still at the heart of culture, even if it's still a minority pursuit. And I wonder if we kind of just say it's fine, YouTube channels and uh, blogs and diaries and and fan mailing lists will pick up the slack we're actually just we're saying the theater can just drift into being a kind of completely niche activity and i suppose tell me if i'm wrong but i feel something might be lost from that i don't think that it's necessarily about the removal of a kind of a print media or a mainstream newspaper press and the theater's place in that I don't think that that's really the issue because I think that actually online doesn't mean invisible. What, we are, what we're in at the moment is this transitional period where because there is this, this shift of power that's happening, there hasn't yet been that sense that the criticism that's happening online has grown in stature and in power and in influence to a point where it might rival what happened in the Times or the Guardian. I fundamentally believe that that's possible and I fundamentally believe in sites like like Exeunt that can become the guardian of tomorrow for mm. a theatre industry it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to become niche individual conversations mm. as long as we are all working on profile and legacy and I suppose newspapers 
might not necessarily for very much longer, even if they are now, be an index of shared culture. I suppose at the moment there is still something symbolic, perhaps, about it being included in the print media, but over time that itself may change. So the disappearance of theatre coverage from newspapers might not necessarily be an indication mm. that it has disappeared from a share, some kind of sense of shared culture. And we also have to ask about, we have to ask serious questions about what theatre is being reviewed in the newspapers, mm. what theatre has been being reviewed in the newspapers for the last 50 years, like, and, you know, before that, like, it's not an accurate snapshot of our theatre life and our theatre community. It's not an accurate portrayal of what work is being made. And that's where there's a real opportunity online to break away from those principles of newsworthiness, mm -hmm. which arise from this slightly odd position that theatre criticism has as of being a, a kind of a subgenre of journalism. And it's it's odd, really, that you know a theatre opening is is classed as news in that sense and therefore driven by those same kind of editorial um, principles. This is going to feel like a little bit of a lurch but actually I think when um, when I rather ham-fistedly try and talk about a sort of shared culture or something another way of thinking about it is through a figure that I know all three of us have thought about a theorist called Jürgen Habermas and the reason why I think that's interesting is his biggest idea is this notion of the public sphere and the, the public sphere is as I take it a story about the emergence in the 18th century of an alternative to royal and traditional authority but a, it was a kind of carving out a social space in which people could speak to each other and the rules by which they worked were independent of of, of authority and they were basically sort of rationality being able to speak on the common ground of rational discourse and of course I think there might be an argument for saying that criticism has some relationship to this idea of a, of a, of a common rational public form of discourse I know you've done a lot more work than I have because I've done no work at all on this, on the origins of theatre criticism in the 18th century. How far do you think the history of the emergence of theatre criticism aligns with what Habermas has to say? Well, one of the things I find interesting about Habermas is that he understood the way that conversations moved in time and according to different groups of people and different places and different circumstances. So he really recognised the fact that there would be an ongoing conversation happening amongst these groups of men who would gather in theatres and clubs and coffee houses and who would also write uh, letters to one another but also kind of pamphlets and periodicals uh, and also letters to kind of the first kind of newspaper publications that we had. And he really saw that the debates that were ongoing, whether it was about, you know, the appropriate behaviour of young women in public or kind of the, you know, latest trade news or news from France or any of the kind of the issues of the day, he understood that these things were an ongoing topic and that you could join and you could debate and you could um, make a contribution and then sit back and listen and then go home at night and then read about it again in the paper the next day and begin to think about your own position in the world according to some of the topics of conversation and theatre criticism in a similar way 
is an ongoing conversation. And what's interesting is that one of the most prominent conversations that was being had by participants in the public sphere at that time was about theatre. It really mattered. People went out and they saw shows and they talked about them because they were an important part of their lives. And that, to me, is possibly the most exciting thing. So it was a topic of, of you know, like Hammerbass says, in the public sphere through these pamphlets. But really, what when we get to kind of people that were writing regularly about theatre in publications that came out kind of daily, three times a week, then the most important ones that really kick-started something were two publications, The Tatler and The Spectator. Uh, a guy called Richard Steele founded The Tatler um, and he was swiftly joined by a guy called Joseph Addison. And then when The Spectator started a year or two afterwards, um, Steele and Addison were working together. And in those two publications, theatre was ever present. Richard Steele went out all the time. He talked about what he was seeing, he talked about the people he was going with, then he talked about the conversations that he'd had in the coffee house afterwards about it. So it was a sense that Theatre Review was, you know, the show itself was kick-starting a conversation about what theatre is, what its moral purpose is, what its kind of behavioural um, kind of traditions are. And then Addison, who was more of a kind of a learned scholar kind of a guy, um, he read plays more than he necessarily went out to see them. So he would look deeply at texts and think about their meaning and think about their relationship to kind of old Grecian stuff. Um, and those two guys really set off a load of imitators. So once the Tatler and the Spectator got really popular, loads of other people were like, I'll have a bit of this, I go to see shows, I have some thoughts about them, here they are. Uh, and we should probably say, just in case people are confused, the Tatler and Spectator that you're talking about have nothing to do with the Tatler and Spectator that exists nowadays. I think they're, they're completely discontinuous. But, but I suppose in Habermas's terms, when you describe that thing of somebody going to the theatre, having a conversation afterwards, and then writing about that conversation in the newspaper, that is about enlarging the public sphere to try and encompass as many people as, as, as possible in what starts as a coffeehouse conversation. Now, Habermas has been often criticised for idealising the nature of public discourse, for overstating the importance of rationality in in public discourse though i sort of feel the kind of the way the world is now <clears throat> that's a harder criticism to make but um but but in his in his book the transformation of the public sphere structural transformation i believe Jesus, I knew this i'm gonna <laughs> oh yeah but it's, it was a joke so... to begin with we can let him off on that <laughs> the structural transfer oh man the structural transformation of the public sphere he writes that in the very early 60s and he's he's very optimistic about the beginning of that process in the 18th century in the in the 1960s, he thinks it's all going wrong, it's collapsing, rational discourse is no longer a very reliable way of thinking about how our common culture works. So, Catherine, can I ask you to just think a little bit about how far you think that, that model is at all appropriate for, let's say, the last... 50 years of how theatre criticism has functioned. Well, I wanted to pick up on what you just said about theatre being important in that discussion that was taking place in those coffee houses and those um, 
periodicals and, and pamphlets. I wonder if it, it's um, something to do with the specific uh, kind of social conditions of that time, and, and Habermas does touch on this as well, that um, there could be a sense that theatre was important and vital to a culture, that, but that culture was actually very limited because it was a, a, a white bourgeois male um, public sphere and although it was although it was built on this principle of rationality and the the print the notion that anyone who was who had something worth saying could be part of this discussion in reality it was incredibly limited and so perhaps that notion that particular notion of the public sphere and particularly that um, that role that, that theatre criticism had within that public sphere is specific to those social conditions and it was always in some respects a kind of false um false notion of of public importance or is it, it was important to a limited public and so i wonder then how that how that model of the public sphere maps onto a culture which includes more people but mm-hmm. that's a really clumsy way of putting it and and, and whether there might be a way to um, kind of recapture that sense of conversation, if not that sense of importance. So maybe the, the public sphere is useful as a concept um, for thinking about the way in which conversation about theatre develops online in a kind of in a much more dialogic way mm-hmm. uh, um, now, but, you know, through, through comments, through people linking to one another's um, responses to the same show. Uh, and there was uh, something that's been suggested, particularly uh, in response to Three Kingdoms. So Three Kingdoms was a co-production in 2012 uh, between the Lyric Hammersmith Theatre in London, the Munich Kammerspieler, which I've probably pronounced horrendously, and uh, a company, an Estonian company called No99. Um, it was uh, written by Simon Stevens, directed by Sebastian Nubling, and designed by um, Enelie Semper. And it generated a kind of unprecedented level of of critical response. There were um, a series of of print reviews initially which were kind of mixed and some of them quite dismissive um, of the production and then this really kind of vociferous online debate which followed and and made the production a huge talking point in a way that I don't think has really happened to quite the same extent before or since. Uh, And I think uh, Chris Baum has written about it in a book about theatre in the public sphere and how theatre might once again become part of a, a public sphere today. Um, and he, he draws on that example as one way, as, as a, um, an illustration of the, way, the potential that the, that the internet and, and blogging might have to reconnect theatre with a public sphere. Catherine, you've already said that it's dangerous to predict what's going to happen in the future. But let's throw caution to the wind. <laughs> um, so, I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about what the problems are, what the challenges are, what the opportunities are. What's your instinct about where you think things might go? I, I do wonder if the, if the Arts Council is starting to move closer to a position where it, it, it might take some role in... Um, in supporting theatre criticism. I've no idea what that would look like and it probably will be dictated by how much money the Arts Council has and that's not looking, you know, particular, like a particularly, you know, rosy prospect either. 
you might know more about this than I do. Well, I mean, get me started on the Arts Council's responsibility (laughs) to criticism and there's a whole other hour of recording there. What I will say is that they actually are already supporting critical writing, but I think that they're not always thinking it through. Or, you know, far be it for me to say that it's their responsibility to think it through. What they're doing is that they are... um, giving money to some applications that come in that build critical writing into those artistic programs so you may find that bloggers and even you know even professional critics who are you know seeing salaries reduced and opportunities reduced and doing some other things are given a small amount of money by festivals or by venues or by you know various different places to to kind of respond to a season or a festival or a particular strand of work or come into rehearsals in a kind of embedded way. I know that you and I have both done a little bit of that in the Mm. past. Where I find it really problematic is that some of the arts organisations and producers who are building critical writing into their applications are not really thinking about what's best for criticism or what's best for the form. They're thinking about what's best for their project. And that doesn't lead to the kind of fair and thorough critical investigation that I think is the thing that we're missing. And I'm also, I feel very protective over young writers and bloggers and people who don't get a lot of writing, paid writing opportunity and think that those opportunities are an absolute godsend, but are then put in a difficult position where producers are putting pressure on them to pitch to other publications and it's not always easy to disclose that you're also getting paid from the from the festival or whatever I mean I've had mixed experiences I've had very very good experiences of going into rehearsals and responding on kind of a very creative way to what I see and I've also had some very difficult uh, situations where I've been expected to watch 10 hours of work in a day and then go home and write a blog post every night and a lot of that is about my own experience as a writer and how I navigate those discussions but I think that in terms of the Arts Council they're not really showing an interest in combating some of those ethical difficulties that are being presented to to young writers. I think there's also that there also hasn't been enough thinking around sustainability because the other way in which some arts council funds are either directly or indirectly supporting criticism is through schemes being run by theatres often outside of London uh, which is those which is the, the theatres themselves or kind of sometimes consortiums of theatres there seeking to develop a, a local critical ecology because many of those areas are being completely neglected by national critics they want a conversation around their work quite understandably um, but there isn't there isn't any kind of long-term thinking in place so there'll be a scheme of a few weeks and I've you know I've I've taught on some of these which is to support a a group of critics to uh, or aspiring critics to develop those skills to build relationships with those theatres and they those relationships with the theatres can continue afterwards and those those bloggers can then go to see theatre for free in that area I suppose that, that that's the legacy of it but um, but there isn't beyond that. There's no there's no long term sustainability. There's certainly no way in which those writers are um, are likely to see any 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 income from that. Which and maybe that's not a problem. But if these schemes just kind of keep 
proliferating and they over 10 weeks or however mm-hmm. long it is create sort of create a, um, a, a critical ecology but then just neglect it again mm-hmm. I don't it, it, it's it's hard to see how that really develops criticism as a as a form and and the convers- and the conversation around the work in a longer term sense and you said about kind of the, the people that you that you were working with on that scheme mm. may not necessarily have had this desire to become professional theatre mm. critics, but I wonder how affected their desires and indeed their their career choices and the potentials for their future by the fact that there aren't the jobs even if they wanted them. Mm. Like the last the last six months or so, I've been doing a series of interviews with practicing theatre bloggers asking them all sorts of things about their practice how they work where they get paid from what they you know what Mm. what their day job is what their their motivations and aspirations are and almost none of them want to kind of pursue this professional theatre criticism job Mm. because they know that they can see with their eyes that it's going to be a massive slog. It's a miserable life. Why would they want to go, yes, I am dedicated to doing this. I'm going to, you know, spend all of my 20s pitching for 40 quid a pop, if that, and then have nowhere to go when I want to get a salary and buy a house. Like, that's not necessarily somebody who doesn't have a desire to be a theatre critic. That's somebody who knows it's fruitless. So why not look at other opportunities and do a scheme for fun? I'm not completely sure whether we've left that on a positive note (laughs) or a negative note, but but leave it we have, uh, because we're kind of out of time. But uh, Catherine, Megan, thank you very much. Thank Thank you for having us. I've loved the work of Sean Dale Jones and his company, Hoi Polloi, for more than a decade. In fact, he's been working and performing for over 20 years, but it was really with his show Floating in 2006 that he came to wide attention, including mine. This show, a piece of magical storytelling about an earthquake causing the island of Anglesey to float out onto the high seas, also introduced Sean's alter ego. Hugh is an indefatigably enthusiastic, delightful and optimistic figure who cannot resist commenting on how much he's enjoying performing and how proud he is of the ideas that he and his friends have come up with. Hugh Hughes anchored a series of shows after that. Floating the Story of a Rabbit and 360 were indeed later brought together as a trilogy, The World of Hugh Hughes, that came to the Barbican Centre in 2010. And this work developed in Stories for an Invisible Town and Things I Forgot I Remembered. Each of them was inventive, theatrically ambitious and full of joy even as they address topics like love, friendship, home and death. In those later Hugh Hughes shows, 
the theatrical narratives tended to fall away in favour of more direct storytelling, and the shows were amplified by walking tours, story rooms, blogs and videos. In a sense, this created an interesting bifurcation in Sean Dale Jones's work between explorations of theatre and explorations of storytelling. An example of the former would be 2006's The Imposter, a reworking of Molière's Tartuffe, or The Doubtful Guest in 2008, which took the stories of Edward Gorey and turned them into dazzling performances. In both, key events were not directly represented, but instead the pleasure came from the characters on stage struggling to find ways of representing the events of the story, or simply announcing the scenes and then acting them out, like... Or like this. Ladies and gentlemen, we present to you. But there were signs in things I forgot to remember that Hugh Hughes was losing his cheerfulness about the world, and with it, some of his delight in theatre's more flamboyant opportunities. For the two most recent shows, Hugh Hughes has stepped aside to let Shondale Jones take centre stage, and he's brought with him a new political engagement. In The Duke, he embeds a passionate commentary on the plight of refugees in a picaresque tale about his father's porcelain statue of the titular Duke of Wellington. In Me and Robin Hood, the politics are even more front and centre in a show that rages about the power of money, the inequalities of the world, and the ways we assign value to things, even the very show we're watching. It is deliberately and unapologetically a revolutionary piece of theatre. Just have a moment of positivity. And let's just think about how the world looks. That makes the show sound perhaps rather earnest, but in fact, it deploys its earnestness sparingly and in theatrical ways that keep you guessing. This wonderful show, certainly one of the most thrilling things I've seen in the theatre for a couple of years, knows the importance of being unearnest. And it is, like all of Sean Dale Jones's work, playful engaging, funny and moving. Returning to home, to friendship, to parents and grandparents, to the unreliability of memory, the guilt of privilege and the internal importance of telling stories. But now it allows the opposition between fantasy and reality, between honesty and lies, between performance and action to clash hard and brutally. The show continually asking us to think what's real, what's right, what matters. It's quite a journey from Hugh Hughes to Shondale Jones, as if Pee Wee Herman had in the most wonderful way turned into Che Guevara. I spoke to Shondale Jones about his work in his dressing room at the Royal Court Theatre. So I'm in the Royal Court Theatre, here to talk to Shondale Jones about his latest piece of work, Me and Robin Hood. And it's playing here at the Royal Court as part of a national tour. Sean, uh, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. Um, the first thing I wanted to ask was actually about stage personas. The first work of yours that I saw 10 years ago, you inhabited a stage persona of Hugh Hughes. And I want to ask you a bit about what that made possible for you and perhaps why you're, you're kind of yourself in these shows or maybe you're a version of yourself. Yeah, when I started working with the Hugh Hughes character, uh, like you say, 10, 12 years ago. Um, at that time, I, I would consider myself, I suppose, to be a performer first before anything else. And so 
that character was created in order for me to make material that was inspired by my real life. At that time, I felt comfortable to talk about my personal experiences because I knew that it was coming out of the prism of this character. It gave me a kind of quite a safe distancing effect. And also, because the character was comic, it meant that the, the kind of comedic nature of the material was at the forefront and laughter was important. Not only laughter, obviously, there was pathos there as well. And I think what happened, like, over the last couple of years is that I kind of decided that I wanted to make work uh, that had a different tone to it. Um, and I also wanted to get closer to the material, actually, because I felt it was important for me to to try to connect an audience to the refugee crisis, which is what the Duke's about, and to poverty and inequality, which is what me and Robin Hood is about. And I kind of went on my own journey with it, really, about really trying to connect with, mm. with, with lives that are so different from my own. And I kind of thought it'd be quite interesting to try to take the audience on that journey too. So I think removing the character meant that the relationship between me and the audience is a lot more intimate. I think it's really interesting that you say that because clearly there is a, a, a difference of tone in these two recent works, The Duke and I mean Robin Hood. But then on the other hand, Hugh Hughes doesn't seem completely different from the stage <laughs> persona you've got. No, I think I think you're right. I do know what you mean. I think I think that there's a basic formula, isn't there? Which is which I think I declare in the very first show um, that I made with you, who's called Floating, where I talk about Louis Bunuel, you know, and fantasy and reality being equally personal and equally felt, and so their confusion being a matter of relative importance. And that basic quote, that basic idea, has run through all of the work, whether I'm doing the Hugh Hughes work or the work in my own voice. Um, and I think you're right that that um, that that combination of uh, reality and fiction pressed against each other. So audiences mm-hmm. are always playing the game of, I don't quite know what's real now. Yeah. Kind, of, kind of creates, it's not just an intellectual game, I think the way I do it, it, it creates a certain, it's, it, it's not just comedy, but it creates a certain kind of toing and froing, yeah. I think, doesn't it? For the audience kind of going, oh, I, think I, I think this is it now, is it? Oh, maybe it's not. Or, oh my God, I've just woken up to the fact that I've been listening to a piece of fantasy which I've assumed was real and now I understand that it's not. And, you know, so I think that's, those are the similarities, I think, between the works. I think that's true. It, it, it seems to me, I mean, that's, oh, clearly that's always been uh, work in what, what you're doing. What I felt with me and Robin Hood is that Actually, that play of truth and reality worked in quite a different way. It was more sort of sequential, right. I suppose, in the sense that with floating or story of a rabbit, you are always going, I, I wonder if this is based on reality, but there's clearly a lot of fantasy in it as well. Whereas there's a kind of stripping away of layers and a kind of more of a, and I mean this in a good way, a kind of quite aggressive game with the audience, I think, where there are moments where you really do just pull the rug out from under us yeah is that something you recognize yeah no definitely i suppose in a, in, a, in a way it's like you know the aggression is kind of looking at someone just going when are we going to wake up yes. to this reality which feels like a fucking nightmare you know obviously trump's a great example isn't he when people go i can't believe he got in and you go well you have to believe it because it's real you know <laughs> and it might feel like a fantasy but it's not you know so, so i think in fact that game of fantasy and reality kind of has inverted in a weird way since 12 years ago because now when we talk about reality it feels like a fantasy right and that, you know so 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 that's so in a way the world's context has made that game different but i think you're right about the aggression i think with me and robin hood that for me personally was a challenge to make the show as a performer because I've never really 
had that relationship with an audience before where I where I do kind of consciously aggress them. Um, you know, I, I need obviously to set up the context inside of which they're being aggressed. It's not just an angry man on stage. But there's a moment, isn't there, as you know, where you know where where there's a lot of fury about inequality and how we have to have a responsibility for that individually. Uh, you know, um, we can't just wait for the political system to to change that. Where I'm getting to more and more in my own life is go. We and my friends, as simple as that, we need to be the ones who start changing that. Right. You know, and therefore I think you know we need to. We need to understand, you know, what we've been through over the last 20, 30 years from when we were students to the lives we have now and all the different ideologies that we've seen happen and understand, how, you know, what, what aspirations we had and whether or, not we, whether or not we agree with those aspirations now and what our new set of aspirations might be slightly yeah. later in life. Not that I'm an old man, you know, <laughs> I'm not 50 yet, but I think at this age, you know, it's an interesting perspective that we have that you didn't have when you were in your 20s. And how would you how would you describe the kind of the way that has emerged in the work? Because I was sort of look at, looking back at other things, and I I thought that moment in things I forgot to remember. You have that sequence that starts with wanting to sort out the lack of grit in the town, and then comically, you know, through a series of kind of incremental steps, it becomes the character trying to sort out the situation in North Korea, and then and then there's a a blog, a Hugh Hughes blog that says. In 2014, Hugh's new mission is to be a member of the world and make sure that we never think that what we can do is too little. Join him to start making the world a better place. Yeah. And that sounds very much like a slogan for these two shows, in a way. Uh, did you see things I forgot? I remembered. Yeah. Well, wow, that's amazing. You came up to Wales. Yeah. I didn't know that. I wish I'd known that. Um, no, I'm glad that you brought that up because actually, um, since finishing writing the piece and opening it in Edinburgh, I've yeah kind of done uh, you know the usual kind of review of okay, so where am I now and what next. And I also realised exactly exactly what you've just said. I thought, fuck no, this began in 2013 when I was writing this show. And that show, yeah, was exactly that. You know, there was a knock on the door by a character called Jerry, who was my friend. I was Hugh Hughes. And he said, Hugh, what are you doing in there? And I say, I don't think there's any point in making a show because look at the world. Right. You know, and I say, look at, you know, look at North Korea, look at climate change, you know, all these things. And then he says, no, but the thing is, uh, Hugh, you're not a doctor, you're not an engineer, you're not a politician. What you are is a storyteller. Yeah. So basically that's all, you, that's the only skill you have. So you need to write a show about it. And absolutely right. I since then all the theatre work I've made has been yeah. has been exactly what you've just said so that's uh, it did start four years ago and when I'm thinking about the kind of relationship between that Hugh Hughes persona and the one that you have at work in these shows and, and I mean this in a really good way it sounds like a negative word but there is an interesting naivety and what I mean by that is then the Hugh Hughes thing clearly he he has this childlike delight in the world. And then I think there's a different sort of naivety, and I, I'm, I'm using this word kind of advisedly, which is actually to say that the ideas that we're told by a, a cynical majority are much too simplistic are maybe things we actually need to get back in touch with, that grotesque inequalities, you know, shouldn't be allowed. So I wondered if you see any connection there or whether that's the wrong way to describe the work. I think... I definitely understand what you're saying. And I, I wonder sometimes whether actually what happens to me maybe is around emotional understanding. 
So if you, if you close in on emotional understanding, we don't have that many emotions. Mm. And so then when, when you, in whatever situation you're looking at, you just feel out what it is you're feeling. And then actually, if you can simplify it down to that, then the argument does become very naive. And I think it kind of cuts through quite a lot of intellectualization, a lot of kind of messy politics, a lot of kind of debate. Saying something simple like the world's unequal now to a point that it's absolutely obscene. You know, that's a simple statement that you can say that most of us would agree with. And then and then you go, and how does it make you feel? It makes you feel both angry and incredibly sad. And then it's like, okay, so what are we gonna what are we gonna do about it? And then understanding how you how you can go, okay, well the political and then you know, you could have a whole political essay about it. But if the simple answer is Robin Hood, which is well, you, you rob a bank, don't you? Just give the money to the people who need it. You know, that's a simple argument. Yeah. Yeah. But I think what that does, it just yeah, I think I think audiences are responding to it because they kind of they kind of they get the feeling of it. Mm. You, I haven't made a piece of you know solid intellectual political theatre, yeah. but I've made a piece that where the emotions are strong and they hopefully do wake us up. I think that's that is it. That's sort of what I was tr- stumbling towards, right. which is there's something about simple but fundamental thoughts that you can recognize and that i seem to think i think i always feel they're really articulated clearly even if they're in the bright childlike vision of hugh hughes or in this much more impassioned angry sometimes tearful tone in which in which these shows are working but can i ask you about about audience in relation to audience because i think that's another thing that's really interesting right across the work which is it always feels there's a tremendous generosity to the audience. So the the moments of aggression, as we've been talking yeah. about it in these shows, are quite surprising because I think the journey from, you know, you, you shake hands with people when they come in. That's uh, happened in a lot of the shows, I think. You gave out cups of tea, just as you have done to me now, <laughs> um, in, in, in Story of a Rabbit, I think. And, uh, and, and in fact, I remember seeing 360, uh, where latecomers came in, and you decided to start the whole show again so they didn't miss anything, which seems to be an incredible act of generosity. So how, do you think, very, do you plan, do you sort of dramaturgically structure your relationship with an audience? Yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, the handshaking, um, yeah, is something I do do at the beginning of every show I've done for the last kind of five or six performances, uh, you know, different shows I've made. And yeah, strategically, that, that's absolutely about, it, it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of that magician trick of, you know, you, you, show, you show them what you have up their sleeve. Or like, I remember like a really fine clown teacher telling me once that the, the best way that a clown begins his act is just by looking at the audience and letting the audience look at him or her. And it's, it's only that. It's just, I look at you, you look at me, we look at each other, and then we begin. And I think what happens in that moment is just, it's just a very powerful human act. And inside of it, for me, there's, there's something about equality. There's something about we're just people. Mm. I might be performing for a while, you might be sitting in the audience, but we're all the same, right? Which I actually um, literally say at the beginning of the Duke. You know, I, I say yes. almost exactly that. But that's that's the job of that. It seems to me it's also part of something that again runs right through the work, which is a kind of real fascination, despite how pared down a lot of the work is, with theatrical representation and how theatrical representation works, or how representation generally works. And I kind of think work as diverse as 
as me and Robin Hood, but also um, you know, like the Doubtful Guest, you know, which is the the adaptation of the the Edward Gorey stories, which had a lot of very very elaborate ways of telling the story that never literally represented it. Yeah. On, on stage, I suppose what I'm asking is whether I mean that is a a, a fascination of yours, and what you think it does to an audience. Yeah, I think with me and Robin Hood, what I, what I was interested in it was the slightly kind of man-in-the-pub anecdotal tone and atmosphere and sense of sense of reality and sense of communication with, with one another. Um, and all... I mean, so when I first started out making the show, I did think I was going to use a number of microphones. Um, some of them would have effects on them. Um, I was going to use quite a lot of audio and quite a lot of video projection. I was going to make a very clever show about political Britain over the last 50 years, starting from the moment that Margaret Thatcher won the, uh, won, won, won the leadership of the Conservative Party in 1975, right through to you know, Theresa May winning the last snap election. Um, and all of that was going to be on video and there'd be bits of um, sound bites on audio, etc. And as I started making the piece, I started realising that actually that was masking the human story, um, which is which is the story that I take the audience through, which is, well, look, I came from a town of poverty and I now live in a town that's full of affluence and I've had my own my own journey through through that time from, you know, from being a boy in a small town to, to being a theatre maker who puts shows on the Sydney Opera House and the Royal Court and the Barbican mm-hmm. and then going... And then going back home and meeting boys who, who are now men who've stayed in that town and, you know, either mechanics or shopkeepers or whatever, and, and trying to understand how, how we connect and what our different life journeys have, have been. And I think actually that's the story, and clearly it is. Right. Um, so I had to basically just clean, clean out the piece yes. from all the kind of surrounding politics, which was kind of like, a, I really felt this was actually just an intellectual kind of, um, you know, show really. Um, and I trusted the emotional centre of the story. And then in terms of form, what that did was go, well, actually, it's going to be a lot, lot... It's just going to be a lot more powerful, a lot more intimate, a lot more kind of real in terms of thinking about theatre if it's just me standing in a space delivering the story. Right. And I think for me it was actually, as a theatre maker, was going... Theatre can still happen without any lights or sound or smoke machines or slide projections or any multimedia it can just be you telling your story and that can be theatre and I really really enjoyed that I mean it's, it was a really big revelation to me to 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 pair it back as, as far as I have because they, they they lots of the shows have been quite paired back I mean 360 was quite yeah 360 was but you know floating a story of a rabbit were, were you know relatively extravagant multimedia pieces although in a in a very lo-fi kind of way. I mean, it never it felt sort of kind of punkish in the sense that you would never go and see... I hope you don't take offence to this. I don't think you'd ever go and see a story of Rabbit and go, how did he do any of that? No, you're right. Yeah, yeah. it all feels homemade. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But, I mean, um, but hopefully... I, I mean, for, for us, the kind of the, the, there was a charm to the homemade nature, wasn't there? Which is, which is that you, you kind of go, oh, that guy and that, those two guys on stage, they clearly made all of this. Yeah. Um, they didn't have much help and they kind of cobbled it together. But I think the game for us with that, with those shows, were like, and yet somehow we pulled it off. So we, we arrived yeah. in, in moments of theatrical illusion that actually, you know, punched through. They were actually, you know, pretty, pretty delightful visual yes. pieces. Um, so in a way, I feel like 
in a way, like I think I was thinking about returning to some of that with me and Robin Hood. Right. So to then say, actually, you know what? It's, it's about, yeah, being naked, you know, just... Yeah, yeah. Um, and, then, and then I think what happens is there's so much more rigour than actually goes on the story and on the words, actually. Mm-hmm. And that's partly what um, the Royal Court experienced of working here, that, that, that is what I think they brought in to the process. They gave me the kind of confidence and the challenge to really, really focus, really, really focus much harder on what was happening on, on, you know, in the text. So can I ask you about yeah, that? Sure. About the t- development process. Was this actually developed at, here at the Royal Court? Did you write it or did it come out of improvisation? Or So I wrote a, a version that I tried out after a couple of months of, of writing and that, that version had quite a lot of audio in it, the use of a microphone. Um, and I tried that out in like charity shops and pubs and cafes in Cambridge. Okay. And then... Um, Hamish Peary, from who's an associate director here at the Royal Court, he then came to see that version and then said that he'd love to help develop it. And then the other people in the building were absolutely in agreement that it would be a great project to develop. So pretty much from like um, February, March this year, right through to August when I opened it in Edinburgh, I developed it here alongside Hamish. And then, and then what happened is we, I kind of wrote different scripts, you know, he would make his comments on the scripts and so would Vicky, who's the artistic director here, and then I would go away and, and maybe do some rewriting on the script. And then what we were surprised by, we, we had a piece that we thought really worked well on paper, and then when I put it on its feet, we started to find that there were many, many better ways of putting the show together. Right. So then we were surprised how much rewriting we then did on our feet. So that was like a combination then of improvisation and text. Right. Uh, and it's still developing, I guess, because certainly the, this version but in the published text is quite different from... From yeah, the version it, you performed. Yeah, and I'm just pointing at the book that you're holding up because yeah. that's the version that I got printed for Edinburgh. Oh, okay. And it says on the back, um, I think it says somewhere here, uh, the version of the script was created specifically to accompany the show at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe. And now in front of us on the table here <laughs> in my dressing room at the Royal Court, in this box is the new script. Oh, right. Okay. And this is much closer to the version that I now use. Right, yeah. okay. Yeah. So is that... Did that develop through performance in Edinburgh? Yes. Or, right, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so even in Edinburgh, like the first four or five shows, we were kept on massively changing it. Right. I mean, the massive changes really were, were about how to frame it, how the show should begin and how the show should end. So even at the beginning of Edinburgh, I was using bits of sound and bits of lighting. Right. Um, and it was only after about four or five shows in Edinburgh we went, you know what, take it all away. It's just you and the audience. No lighting, no right. microphones, no sound, just story. And can I ask about the... I'm gonna, we'll just talk about money, um, because obviously... The, How much is, are you pay me for this? this <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, we haven't discussed this. Um, it, because obviously it's a show about money, very profoundly, but it's also... There's a clearly a very different kind of economic model in how you're making this show, which is that, uh, as I understand it, the space was given very cheaply in Edinburgh. Uh, yeah. The, the tickets are at cost price with the audience encouraged to expected to to pay the rest as a donation uh, to street child united uh, the playtext is at cost the, it's i think it was funded from hoipoloi reserves uh, and so on 
Yeah, the Duke was to- was was pretty much entirely focused uh, and paid for by Hoyplow Reserves, and um, uh, with a little with some contribution from PBJ Management and Theatre World Plymouth, right. and then me and Robin Hood, we put some of our reserves into that. We had some Arts Council money again. Theatre World Plymouth put some money in. PBJ Management put some money in, and the Royal Court have supported it as well. So there's there's there have been a number of partners um, who put some money in to enable us to charge very little for ticket prices and so that the show doesn't need to make a profit mm. um, to pay for itself. Right. Um, but also, you know, it's it's only me. It's a one-man show and, you know, there's it's a very cheap show to tour. Right. Um, and obviously part of me making these shows, that's why I've made them the way they've been made, as well as the fact I wanted to do some solo storytelling. But also it was like, yeah, but actually that's, that's you know, it, it's all in, integral to, to itself, isn't it? You know. Completely. So yeah, the, the the money aspect for me is is a, is a really big part of both shows, but of course, especially with me and Robin Hood. Mm. Yeah, and it, I mean, my God, there's so much to say about it, isn't there? But I think in terms of the easiest thing to say in terms of theatre is, you know, me and and my wife Steffi, you know, we're now you know in our late forties and. We have friends who have been working in the theatre profession for as long as we have, which is now, you know, almost 25 years. And it just seems extraordinary that people who work in the profession can't afford to go and see a show. I mean, it just makes no sense. And so I think for me, it's like, you know, there's a a conversation about how theatre is being made and, and how much it's costing, as well as then saying, and also like, you know, there are people who can't even afford to pay rent, the people who can't afford to feed their children. Mm. You know, there are 3.7 million children in this country who live underneath the poverty line. You know, it's, it's just... So I think anything... So I think the ticket price was, was absolutely about, let's focus in on this question about money and how it is so unevenly, unevenly distributed, you know. It's also, though, isn't it? it it's a very specific kind of audience participation and by that I mean you could have charged 20 quid for your tickets like I guess most of the tickets are upstairs and then you could have just said I'm going to donate half the ticket price to this charity but uh, instead there's a specific call to the audience to do something specific and voluntary and uh, and in that moment yeah and take responsibility um Okay, blunt sort of question. How is that working? It's working really well. So what I mean by that is like, um, well, like since so, okay, so since the beginning of August last year when we first started to now, we've already raised over sixty thousand pounds from for donations. Okay, so that 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 is we didn't know what to expect, but we now know that that is beyond our expectations, even though we had no expectations. Right. Uh, the last. The last uh, like ten days here, they're all caught. <clears throat> Gladly, you know. So people have been incredibly generous. So we're now on about ten thousand pounds across the two shows. Right. So um, and so when you look at other fundraising models that um, you know, I work with Save the Children, I work with Street Child United. They they put on a, on events if they make a thousand pounds or so, let's say from an evening of selling photography or etc. You know, they, they'll be glad to make a thousand pounds or so. Right. So yeah, so so we are actually starting to raise, I think, quite substantial amounts of money. And for me, the idea of the audience being asked to put that money in the bucket rather than 
pay for a top price ticket and then for me to slice it off and mm. for me it's absolutely about about the direct connection that happens between the audience and the charity mm. as well as the choice that the audience has to make that that feels really really important that that that, that action happens and there's a really really clever formulation i think you have in it because obviously asking someone for money is always a kind of awkward thing or it could be an awkward thing and there's a point where you kind of deal with that by saying some people don't know how much to give. And I think you say something like, it should hurt a little bit. Yeah, that's right. Which I think is a really smart way of thinking what the nature of our obligations are. So rather than just chuck a pound in because you're not going to miss that, you know, you actually go, you know what, if I put 20 quid in, actually that's, that's really going to annoy me at the weekend. You know, how do you ask an audience for money live in a show without kind of just, I guess, pissing them off? No, that's a great question, because like, when, I, when I think back to making The Duke, which is the first show in which I've ever asked people for money, I looked at all kinds of different models, and I mean, the one that I really enjoyed, but kind of tried to understand, was like Bob Geldof was famous for, you know, the, the Band-Aid thing, and when he looked at the camera and they couldn't beep him out quick enough, and he goes, just give us your fucking money, <laughs> you know, and I looked and I watched that, and you know, how many times I just thought... It was such an awesome appeal, direct to camera, to the British public. Um, and that's when the money started coming And they did. On, on Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It just started. And, and for me, that, that formulation of, like, you know, people ask how much to give when you should give until it hurts just a little bit, obviously it's, a kind of, has, it's quite a big laugh line as well. Yeah. And it's, it has a cheekiness to it, you know, um, but it also has a real message. Obviously with me and Robin Hood, I kind of make it very clear because I'm spelling things out that the first seven pounds that goes into the bucket from an audience member is not their donation. You know, that's my donation because I that would normally be my profit. So that seven pounds that they're giving is my profit. You know, so I kind of in in, in me and Robin Hood I'm being a lot more assertive slash aggressive slash more confrontational about the nature of the money that we hold and and where, and how much of that money we think is ours or has been given to us and is in our power to give to somebody else how happy are we to let go of that money and that fascinates me more and more like i think you know the the, the nature of the nature the, our nature is how we hold on to money and whether or not we're prepared to let it go you know and that's a really physical thing yeah. you know and you see people who are who are really i mean it's it seems unfair to say this but i will say it because everyone's anonymous but sometimes you can see that 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 some that some sort of like almost almost like a fear of letting go of their money. You, know, you you can see people open their wallets, and they have a small panic about about whether they should put in the blue note or the brown note or two brown notes or whether they should open their change bit of their wallet and put in just. Co- but I'm not joking you. There, there, there there's something something happens in that moment which feels to me like you know a huge yeah. metaphor around how we, some of us, you know, have pensions, some of us have things insured to the hilt, yeah. some of us amass savings, and some of us don't, for yeah. various reasons. And my God, you go, wow, what's going on inside of us to make us be one person around money or another, you know? And there's, yeah, anyway, there's something in there that's, that's fascinating. There's another interesting thing that you do with the audience, which is something I also saw a couple of weeks ago at the end of the majority, the Rob Drummond show at the National Theatre, which is at the end saying, I would like to see you in the bar and I want to carry that conversation on. And I wondered whether there's something in the air there about trying to 
trying to really push past a barrier between the stage and the auditorium. And the frustration of that fuels a lot of me and Robin Hood, I think. You know, that, that sometimes that feeling that you're unable to do that. Could you talk a little bit about that, about what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. The frustration is that you could read a story or come to a theatre um, or be inspired by an exhibition and then leave and think that what you've done is witness a piece of art rather than going, no, no, the piece of art exists because of the real world. And there's absolutely that. And I think what I'm trying to do with me and Robin Hood by kind of playing around with the ending, because I'm still playing around a lot with the ending, is absolutely trying to keep that space open. You know, the show, like, so I've, I've experimented now with, with asking the audience not to applaud. Yes. And the reason t- t- not to applaud is, is so that we don't close the space. We, we, we try to keep that story alive mm-hmm. as we walk out of the theatre. The other thing to say about it, I suppose, is like with both shows, I've been very clear to charities and to political movements that I'm very happy to come and perform my show to them, for them, wherever and that's why I've made the shows to be as flexible as possible so like my big aim is to link theatre with charities with politics so the exciting thing that happened at the weekend was John McDonnell the shadow chancellor yeah came to see the show and and he was very excited by this idea that at the end of the show there could be a kind of forum style conversation Um, and we've started the conversation about whether or not the show might be useful to present at some momentum events or some conferences um, so that that the show can be followed by conversation and debate. So yeah, so I I think for me it's the beginning of trying to understand how we might literally be able to make that happen, manipulate a show so that it becomes a conversation. The other thing I should say, I mean, you might think, my God, the guy's a bit kind of doesn't really know what he's doing at all. Um, and I kind of said this to the literary, assist, literary um, assistant here. I said, I think actually theatre, the reason people go to the theatre is because actually what they want is a conversation. And the play is only an excuse to have a, have a conversation. And the audience coming together is a rehearsal for us just coming together. That's what we want. So the whole act of coming to the theatre is is only serving a deeper human need, which is why you can go see any show, but there'll still be the ritual of an audience coming together and sitting in the dark together. And then they'll, some people will then attempt to have a conversation about their, the show they've seen because they have a deep need to talk to each other and it's a facilitation process. And so I pitched a non-show, which was like... There isn't the sh- we, we come to see a show, which we think is a show, but all I'll do is just sit and chat <laughs> and see what the conversation might be. Um, take the play away and just cut straight to the quick and just sit and have a conversation. Um, <laughs> I don't know if they're going to go for it, but I, I, I kind of think that you, we could maybe get to the point where you take the play away <laughs> yeah. and see what other stories emerge. And finally, as you know, because you've been paying attention, I'm keen to talk on this podcast to some of my academic colleagues working in theatre and performance to find out what shows and what ideas have been exciting them. When I discovered recently that Kim Solger was making a trip from Canada to London, I seized the chance to find out what she's been watching and thinking about. So I'm going to talk to uh, 
a guest about something they've read and something they've seen. And my guest today is Kim Solga, who is a professor in the Theatre Studies Programme at the Department of English and Writing Studies at Western University, Canada. She's also the author of the brilliant blog, The Activist Classroom, which is a, a passionate investigation of teaching in a university and all of the cultural, political and pedagogic issues uh, that brings up. And I, I strongly recommend that to you. Um, Kim Solga, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. So, Kim, uh, what is it you've read that we're going to talk about today? Uh, so I have brought with me the first two chapters of Joanne Tompkins' latest book from 2013, I believe it was, 2014, sorry, uh, called Theatres Heterotopias. And it's about uh, space and performance, and in particular, it sets out to create a methodology for analyzing the way space functions in performance toward social, political, and culturally rich ends. And people who aren't familiar with the language of academia, yes. uh, the first the first thing that's going to trip us up is this word heterotopia. Do you, do you want to just say a little bit about what that is, and then we can we can kind of discuss what we think it means and, and benefits us? For sure. So for most people, this term comes uh, from the French philosopher and intellectual Michel Foucault, who first wrote about it, or wrote about it quite famously in a text called Of Other Spaces. And to be honest, I think Foucault's assessment of heterotopia for a lot of people is a little bit vague, and actually Joanne talks a bit about that as well. And so it's been a very rich idea, but also kind of a problem. Um, for Joanne, heterotopia is derived uh, not just from Foucault, but also from a guy called Kevin Hetherington. Um, and for her, it simply means, uh, following Hetherington, spaces of alternate ordering. So. We might think about the way we use space in sort of an ordinary way, walking around in the world, and how we expect space to look certain ways and do certain things. So for example, I was walking here from the tube. I expected to follow a series of streets. I used Google Maps to help me get here the most efficient way possible. Uh, as I was walking through the large public square a couple of blocks away, I discovered that the beautiful garden inside the square was available only to people who are rich and live on the square. So I I couldn't cut through it, and I just took all of that as normal. In fact, that's a demonstration of the way that space helps to order our social relations. And this is a really important part of the concept of heterotopia for Kevin Hetherington uh, and for Joanne, who follows him in particular in her understanding of heterotopia. Um, it's a demonstration of the fact that space is ordered a particular kind of way, and we tend not to question it, but it's possible that we could order space completely differently and generate different kinds of social relations in the process and value different kinds of things. I want to go back briefly to, to actually the, the Michel Foucault mm -hmm. um, origins of this idea. As you say, it is, it is quite a cryptic yeah. piece. Uh, I think that's partly because, I, as I understand it, it's actually a 1967 lecture mm -hmm. that was published... It was published in 1984, which I, I can't actually remember if, whether he was dead by then, but it's either posthumous or very late in his life That's at a point right. when he was, he was not in a position to, to, to be able to rewrite it. So, so it's got the compression of a set of lecture notes or working ideas. The way he describes heterotopias in that uh, article is kind of the idea that society assigns certain special places whereby various kinds of um, 
social anxieties or cultural fault lines might be expressed in particular ways. He talks about prisons, but he also talks about cemeteries and, mm-hmm. and, and things like that. And he fleetingly refers to theatre. It's interesting because John Tompkins is not actually all that impressed with what he says about, about theatre. So why isn't she impressed and what's she doing to complement and supplement that? Sure. So I think the reason she's not especially impressed is because we might say that, as often happens with French philosophers, Michel Foucault's words, which, as you know, were probably to some extent said on the hoof, um, have been picked up, ossified, and then reused over and over again, not particularly well, that is to say not particularly precisely, by theater scholars who've made note of this very connection. And I don't think... I'm going to guess that Joanne's gripe is not actually with Foucault per se, but rather with the lack of precision that he permitted, whatever that might mean here, to go forth in that text and that, was, that has then been perpetuated. She's interested in precisely that issue of precision, in finding a way for us to be careful about our discussion of space at the theatre and careful about what we might claim for it. So how do we nail down exactly what makes a space of resistance? So this is where Joanne, using Kevin Hetherington's idea of a heterotopia as space of alternate ordering, comes to think about heterotopia as a place, whether it's concrete or imagined, geographical, or uh, has something to do with the architecture of a theater or the architecture of a set design. uh, She thinks of it as a space that connects to a social or political context and therefore reality, and as a result, helps to create for us a way to understand a potential intervention in our own lives. One of the things I thought was very exciting about the way she sets that out is that in in a sense, what's at work in not necessarily all theatre, but probably in most theatre, there are kind of four spaces at work. I mean, mm-hmm. there is the, yes. the ordered system of space outside the theatre. Mm-hmm. So it's, I guess, the kind of dominant system of space. You then got the theatre itself, which is, you know, if you think about like a lot of West End theatres, they're machines for taking you into a slightly different experience. You go out of the light, into the dark, you often go downstairs. So in, in that sense, it has that heterotopic, potentiality I suppose to it you've then got the set on the stage so you've got a very specific environment in which the story is going to take place which again is a transformation of a real space into something else and then you've got the kind of I suppose imaginative space uh, that the story is taking place in um, and those, and, and of course the most important thing is that those four spaces all interact with each other in more or less productive mm-hmm. ways. The way I describe it there is quite abstract. I mean, do you, can you actually see that working or imagine that working in a particular theatre experience? We have to get out of imagining all theatre has heterotopic potential. Yeah. Because it does. It, and that's a good place to start, to say that. But then you must move on from that because simply because the theatre does offer the potential to order space differently doesn't mean it will. And if we are seduced into thinking that all theatre tells us something critically important about space in our world, then we may very well mistake fairly conservative pieces of work for something that has the potential to uh, order life differently. The other key thing, I think, is to think very carefully about how what's happening on the stage in those final two spaces that you mentioned. So the way the set design shapes our experience as spectators and also the way the imagined world 
of the play or worlds of the play connect to both that design and also us. And, and of course, that's partly the... It's talking about the relationship between, I suppose, well, two different faculties. One is uh, our kind of optical faculty, our ability to take in the world, our sensibility. Um, and then there's the imagination. And of course, they, in terms of space, they occupy very different rules, such that you can imagine no space at all. Mm-hmm. You can imagine two spaces that are completely um, overlaid on one another, as in a dream, when you mm-hmm. kind of say, mm-hmm. it was weird, I was at school, but it was also my mother's house at the same time, sort of thing. Whereas, of course, those things sort of can't really happen. So there's, it's a partly a, it's about the clash between those, not the clash, the tension between those two different kind of human mental faculties, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and... Indeed, although I'm speculating a little bit here, I, I think that plays that activate tension in specifically in the way that we think about place um, that ask us to use our imaginations not only to form some of the space and place on stage, uh, but also to think critically about what it might be like if school and mum's house were the same or something like that. Um, that can do some really exciting things for us. So our imagination is, audience imagination is a central part of what it means to make meaning at the theater. Um, No play is complete until an audience gets in there and starts thinking all the crazy thoughts that come with uh, a bunch of individual human subjects watching from a bunch of different perspectives. Can you give me an example of where you've seen this happening? Okay, yes, absolutely I can. So I was, a few years back, I was at the Young Vic in London, and I was watching a production of The Cherry Orchard that was directed by Katie Mitchell. And I love Katie Mitchell, and I love the Young Vic uh, for loads and loads of reasons, but I, one of the reasons, because I am a middle-class academic, and both, uh, both Katie Mitchell's work and the Young Vic's mandate speak to me. And what I mean by that is the Young Vic is a fantastic theatre on the South Bank in London that sits on the border between the boroughs of Lambeth and uh, Southwark. And as a result, it's, and those are are two quite poor boroughs in London, and as a result, it sees itself as a very community-orientated theatre. It offers um, free tickets to shows to any resident of both of those boroughs. It offers lots of opportunities for internships, things like that. Um, So I was at this show, and there's a fantastic moment in, I think it's either, I think it might be the second, possibly the third act, where a beggar enters the space, and he confronts a lot of the characters on stage. The characters themselves are sort of aristocrats manqués. They're losing their house because they're too profligate with money and because change is coming. It's the turn of the 20th century. Modernization is happening, and there's a lot of social commentary built into this play, which was originally written by Anton Chekhov. In this moment, in this production, the beggar figure comes on stage and says, have you got any money? basically. He's entered the house of the people he's asking for money, so he's, he's made a very important contravention. He's crossed the threshold into this house. And I remember the expression on all of the faces of all of the characters on stage, and it was just utter blinding gobsmackedness that this person was not only asking them for money, but had come into the house. And it seemed a very tense, even threatening moment. The rest of that beggar character's speech goes on to say, well, actually, you know, you don't know what's going on outside. Outside, it's chaos. It's terrible. Things are 
chaotic out there. And this is post 2008. This is uh, you know the the world after the the crash or whatever we're calling it, um, income inequality, austerity, or pulling at the fabric of, of British society in a really, really gross way. And there was something really tense about that moment. And thinking about it later, I thought to myself, you know, what actually happened there was that the, the beggar walked into the young Vic. And he said to the audience that prides itself on being part of a, a theater subscription audience that has all kinds of support schemes for folks who don't make as much money or who are suffering austerity to a much greater extent than we might be doing in the audience. He kind of came in there and he said, you got any money? This is all really well and good, all this theater stuff, but actually stuff's a bit shite for us out there and I just want you to see that for a minute. And for me that was really activating because I felt like I had... It's very easy to feel very comfortable watching socially critical work at a theater that makes socially critical work and to feel good about yourself for having seen it. But this was a moment when I felt really uncomfortable as I felt like I'd been asked to take a really hard look at why I value something like The Young Vic as much as I do. In Michel Foucault's original article that invents this notion of the heterotopia, his, the last example of a heterotopia that he gives us is a boat. But he says, the boat has been the greatest reserve of the imagination. The ship is the heterotopia par excellence, mm. which seems to be an, an interesting way of, of moving us into the show that we've both seen that we're going to talk about. Do you want to just tell us what the show is? Sure. So the show is called uh, The Unknown Island. Um, it's uh, at the Gate Theatre. How long is it at the Gate Theatre, Dan? Until the 7th of October. Excellent. All right. So it comes from a short story by Jose Saramago, and the director of this production, Ellen McDougall, has adapted uh, the short story for the stage along with Claire Slater. Um, and the show is basically a man goes to the palace of the king and uh, very persistently knocks and knocks and knocks until he gets to talk to the king. He asks for a boat. The king gives him a boat. The, the cleaning woman from the palace follows him. They get a boat. They begin prepping the boat. They share a meal together. They begin to feel strong feelings for one another. They go to sleep. A very extraordinary dream takes place. The, the fellow who's asked for the boat has an extraordinary dream in which he's imagining the most whimsical and powerful voyage. Eventually he wakes up and they set sail. And, uh, and of course, uh, it, it is a piece of storytelling theatre, isn't is. it? I mean, it's, yeah. that's the aim of it. It's a brilliant story and... Ellen McDougall's cast tell us the story. Um, can you try and describe how they tell the story? What is the kind of theatricality of it like? Absolutely. So um, we enter into the space, and actually immediately I felt like I was in some sort of enclosed meditation chamber. The whole space is in blue, covered in sort of blue tarp-like Something, something, something that can be cleaned, as we discover later, is, is urgent. Um, there's seating all around the outside. There's a little bit of raked seating, but for the, the vast majority of the audience, sit around the space. Uh, music from, is it Pirates of the Caribbean? I don't know, actually. I, I think it might have been Pirates of the Caribbean. Plays, and when the lights go down, the actors come in through the same door we came in through. And they're all wearing paper crowns and they're all dressed in what is effectively maroon. Uh, and then they begin to recite the story. They each take different lines, and everyone's playing 
everybody. And uh, we should mention a couple of the other devices, I suppose. Yes. You mentioned the, the paper crowns, which, yeah. um, which uh, in a sense is a, an Ella McDougall signature in some sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, she did this uh, production of Henry V for mm. children that uh, had, had paper crowns in, and also balloons, her last play at the uh, gate with Idomeneus also had the use wow, of balloons. Okay. But there's also that very interesting moment when they eat in the in the show. They also share that with they us. So we us. get a little little cup of wine, get a bit of bread and a couple of olives as well. Yes. I think the, the the style of performing is really interesting as well because they're not acting in the sense yeah. of enacting character. They're not really pretending to be them you know they're not just saying I'm an actor telling Mm -hmm. the story so it's somewhere between acting and performing how did you read that my first thinking was well they're they're inviting us to make a world they're going to make a world here on stage and the devices that they use are actually very childlike right there at one point there are balloons the food is very basic but it's the kind of thing that you would share with your friends if you were in um, your hut in the back garden on a Saturday afternoon there's something very childlike about the process but at this but it's it's a very sophisticated childlikeness so they're introducing us to a process of world-making that we call the theatre. Um, you, you describe that as being childlike in some way. And I, Playful, maybe. Absolutely, yeah. I can see that. Of course, the other, the other resonance of that moment, in particular the food moment, particularly when they, they, they light candles and they give you bread and wine, yeah. of course, is a kind of communion and a kind of religious... I was going to say seduction, but yes. Okay. Okay. No, no, communion too. I'm with you. I'm with you. Well, that's interesting. I mean, there is a bit of both. It's it's a very seductive moment. I mean, it's it's a point where you have to slightly lose an inhibition because, you know, who really, who really likes audience participation? (laughs) Um, and, and, And by choosing to accept a little little tumbler of wine you're accepting that breaking of that barrier and so that's very good but then also the the communion thing i think is interesting because as a as a resonance i suppose it has two things one is communion and community because we became very much all part of the same group it mm-hmm. acknowledges us in a particular way when we're all sitting there eating mm-hmm. the same bread and then also transformation not exactly transubstantiation, but, you know, transformation. It is turning us into a different kind of group, just as we've seen the actors semi-transform themselves into characters. Um, It's very easy to say that thing about audiences becoming a kind of temporary community. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes we say that a bit too much in theatre studies. Um, But do you think there was any of that in this performance? Yeah, I do. And I think it actually did a bunch of different things Um, And for me, that's exciting. The frame for this show actually happened before any of us entered into the theatre. And that is that one of the staffers, before they opened the doors, one of the staffers got up on the um, the little staircase that leads into the theatre and talked about how the gate receives funding uh, as publicly funded theatre, but also, as a result, requires a donation in addition to box office. And the staffer mentioned what the cost of our tickets would have been had there been no public subsidy attached to the gate. Um, it was substantially more than the tickets were. I think it was £50 something versus uh, less 20. than 20 So big difference. And then it invited us, if we could, to donate 
everything from a, a few coins to anything larger that we might be able to do. So that was an important framing moment for me because it reminded me that A, we are all a community of theater goers at this moment who have chosen to come to the gate, probably know a little bit about the show, if not about the theater itself. So it's invited us to think of ourselves as a community in that respect, but it's also invited us to think about ourselves in relation to social stratification. Mm -hmm. Where do I fall? Can I donate 10 pounds? Can I write a check to the gate when I get home or send in an electronic something? Uh, or can I put a pound in the box? later or can I not? Am I one of those people that is that is receiving also this subsidy as it were because 20 pounds is all I can afford for a theater ticket? So there's some encouragement there to think about how we are positioned socially in relation to the theater in its cultural space. Then we get inside and we're very much all in it together, right? Everybody's going to have to participate, everyone's sitting around the space, we're all going to be handed some food. So then we're being encouraged to think of ourselves as a community of makers who could make something interesting and different together. Um, and then there's the layer for me of playfulness, which on the surface suggests that whatever play we engage in in this space is going to just stay in this space. So there were lots of questions around togetherness that I felt like the production posed by virtue of the way it manipulated our bodies in space. And there's a really lovely moment actually, which I've only just remembered, where they open the window. Yes. And, and actually the, the sounds of the Notting Hill night come in through the window mm. and, and, and you're right, we see the trees and so on. And of course, in a certain symbolic way, it wasn't opening up of that, that as you say, rather enclosed space. Yeah to the outside world, even though the show that we're seeing is a kind of, almost like a children's fable, and yeah. so not, not evidently connected to contemporary mm -hmm. realities. I was, getting, I was getting a message about um, using our imaginations in a way that might mean our resources do differently for us than we might think. If, if a heterotopia is a space of alternate ordering, this was, a, this was a moment when, this, this show was a series of moments when we were being invited to think about the space where the gate makes its shows as a boat, mm. literally as a boat. In fact, when the window uh, pane went up, I actually got the strongest sense of being on a boat um, for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, it's giving us the opportunity to imagine a few items of food handed out as a, as a really exciting meal that we share. Um, it's giving us the opportunity to imagine a bunch of very charming balloons of animals as a menagerie uh, at sea. Um, it's asking us to think, okay, if this is what we've got, do we have to just fetch and lament about it? Mm. Or can we do something different with it? And I thought the... Uh, the the choice of four actors to perform it, who I thought were tremendous, mm -hmm. actually. Yeah. We briefly talked about this afterwards, and I still don't know whether this is true, but there were, these, there were actually gaps in the performance yeah. where it, it looked briefly like they weren't sure who was going to speak. Yeah. And we, we had the suspicion, is it one of those things like the the middle act of Martin Crimp's uh, In the Republic of Happiness, where the whole cast has learnt the whole sure. script and people can just choose what they perform at any one time. If so, it adds something to the kind of liveness of yeah. the experience, but also you, you begin to kind of additionally respect the kind of skill of the ensemble and the, yeah. the collective. Mm -hmm. Did, is your... 
Have you found out whether that's true? I have not. No. Um, I've done some sleuthing, but not uh, not to that extent. For me, I ended up paying really close attention to how the different members of the cast were looking at each other. And I think regardless of how they've learned the show, they were using that improv tool of offering an invitation and taking up an invitation to speak. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if that had something something to do with their rehearsal process or the way they, they devised the show, although I don't know uh, for certain in any way. But I, I got a very strong sense that the space between them as they spoke to one another was activated by that handing over of line or handing over of responsibility for the story. These performers are very much dependent upon one another and dependent upon us. We often don't see that at the theatre. Kim Sullivan, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dan. So there you go. That's nearly two hours of your life you'll never get back. But if you're on natural hungers and not yet sated, why not head over to Stage Left, the theatre podcast hosted by my lovely friend and colleague, Jen Harvey, a series of interviews with performance makers like Scotty, Nick Green, Split Bridges, Selena Thompson, and more. Great conversations with some great people, and she hasn't even paid me to say that. Thank you to Megan Vaughan, Catherine Love, Sean Dale Jones, and Kim Solger. Music is by Nick Powell and Nick McCarthy. Graphics are by Liam Jarvis. We're on Twitter at stage direct pod meanwhile i am on twitter at the hopelessly predictable at dan Rebellato. itunes is the best place to safely dispose of your five star ratings next week if all goes well i'll be discussing theater and class with dave o'brien and interviewing chris thorpe about his work particularly the recent victory condition at london's royal court until then mes amis bye have to get laughing out of my system first, sorry. Um, we can laugh on this. We can, yeah, we, we can, can laugh. <laughs> yeah, we're not just inanely giggle at the very fact I'm asking a question. That's not gonna, that's not gonna work. Um,